Coming up this hour, an online class about the secret to happiness. And then the Fresh Prince of Bel Air cast got back together. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. Good afternoon. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, as is always the case, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. You know, it's going to be nice out this weekend. Probably people mowing the lawn, doing yard work. Listen Ooh. to the podcast while you do that. I, I hope, man. I hope I can mow my lawn this weekend. That was a good pitch, though. People do like listening to podcasts while they mow the lawn. You also are much more directional. I'm always like, if you want to, and you're like, no, get it. it. Get the podcast. Make it happen. <laughs> I appreciate so, uh, that. Uh, anyway, it's a beautiful day outside. It's Friday. Hope that you're doing well today. Ian, have you been uh, you've been able to enjoy this beautiful day at all so far today? Yeah, we just went on a on a great family walk, which of course is always fun with a one and two year old because the <laughs> two year old demands that he walks and then three minutes into it is either running from you or demanding that you carry him. So <laughs> really serene, really. Pe- no, it was it was awesome. And the weather was great and the sun was shining. And uh, I'm I am grateful. I never thought I would be so glad to see sunlight in my life. No doubt. And so. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful weekend, too, as apparently it is supposed to be uh, 70 and sunny tomorrow. So our church is actually doing we're doing a drive up food and supply drive tomorrow where you don't get out of your car. But I think it's going to be one of those moments where I get to see a bunch of people from our church, at least from a distance. I am super excited for that. Eight till 11 a.m. If you want to come by Four Corners Community Church in Darien tomorrow. Yeah. Um, also, brace yourself for like how emotional that might be. We did I a. Am, we, we did a little parade for uh, uh, a dear friend of ours who just lost right. her husband, another dear friend of ours, and they were driving past her house, which was in a cul-de-sac. So all the cars that were ahead of us, as they were making their way back down the road, you know, they were passing us and got to see him for like a split second. And it was, I was surprised at how emotional I got just physically seeing the faces of yeah. some of these people. It was amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm just going to sit in a lawn chair and wave to people because we're not taking their stuff. Everyone has to get out and do their own. Nice. So uh, just I'm very excited for that. So uh, hopefully everybody's got a good weekend in front of them. Uh, Wanted to start today with a strange story. We've all been talking about Michael Jordan with this last dance. His agent, his longtime agent, not his agent anymore, named David Falk, uh, was on WFAN's Boomer and Geo in uh, New York City. And listen to what he said. He said to Michael Jordan, I brought him, being Michael, a deal three years ago for $100 million. All he had to do was, other than giving his name and likeness, which is the big caveat there, make a make a one, two-hour appearance to announce the deal, and he turned it down. Uh, outside of things that are illegal, Ian Simpkins, would you turn anything down if offered $100 million? <laughs> oh, yes, Brian. We're not... <laughs> All wired like you. You've you've admitted on this show more times than I can count. If you found a sack of gold coins in the middle of the street, you're like, oh, that's mine now. I I earned that. That's that's God's common grace to me. I wouldn't I, take yeah. it from somebody. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. But yes, I read that and and I don't really want to get into it, but a hundred million dollars. Although there is that caveat in there, all it required was his name and likeness. So yeah, that's uh, your, 
my brother actually commented on the post. He's like, other than give up his likeness and name, which is his entire brand. Exactly. So I hadn't seen that because the headline, of course, a little clickbait. He was like, Michael Jordan turned down $100 million for a two-hour appearance. Right. And then you read the article and it's like, other than his likeness and his brand. Right, uh, right. That's the whole That's the whole spiel, which again, he lives in a different stratosphere than we exactly. do. So I can't pretend to really understand what that would be like. Exactly. More so, I wanted to get to this article, Religion News, on religionnews.com. This is up on our Facebook page. Uh, it says this, one fallout of being stuck at home during a catastrophic pandemic is time to ponder life, which in turn apparently leads people to ask serious questions about happiness. In particular, how do I get there? Hmm. For many, the question has brought them to Yale professor Lori Santos, the queen of an increasingly crowded discipline, Familiarly, familiarly known as happiness studies. So here's the background. She offered a class at Yale about the science of well-being, essentially uh, how to get happy. What is happiness? And all around the happiness lab. And I believe we talked about this when she first did it. Well, now you can audit the class um, and for no cost. And since this has happened, since the pandemic, more than 2.2 million people have signed up to audit her class, her 10-week class on happiness. Uh, what do you take from that? What, if anything, do you take from people going, in this time period, I want to audit a class all about the art of happiness? I, I mean, I don't think it's new. I think the pursuit of happiness has been at the center of the human psyche for as long as we've, you know, had one. <laughs> I, yeah. I think uh, it... It probably is elevated by the fact that it's something being offered at Yale. So like that name recognition is probably a big part of it. But if you even do just a, like a cursory glance at like the most popular TED Talks, a lot of them circle maybe sometimes a little more loosely than others, the idea of how to be happy or content. So I, I you know, I think that's actually a really helpful litmus. Like, all right, what are the videos that people are watching and sharing over and over and over again? So I'm not really surprised. It's a pretty high number, but I think you link a global pandemic, which is right. likely to cause a lot of us to kind of spiral out of control. Plus, not for us necessarily, but for a lot of people, a lot more free time, something like a free online course that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me that it's seen that level of recognition. I'd be curious to know what the course actually teaches. Exactly. So they, they later talked to Arthur Brooks. You might remember we discussed uh, his Atlantic art, uh, column earlier this week on happiness. Uh -huh. And uh, Brooks says this. He said the uh, happiness studies can lead people to seek out meaning and purpose, a goal of working towards something bigger than the self, whether it's religious like faith or secular, working toward the common good. Uh, the irony of happiness studies, Brooks said, is that many people take the class for purely personal reasons, but wind up learning that focusing on the self may not be the key to lasting happiness. Yeah. If I live under the illusion, I'm all, the only thing that matters, which is very easy to do. Brooke said, I become anxious yep. and unhappy. So that is a I very agree. biblical concept. Uh, do you think that's one that most people get, or is it completely backwards and you kind of, something you'll kind of learn the hard way? No, I honestly think more people get this than we tend to let on. I feel like a lot of times churches will often like in sermons, their big aha is like, but actually it's better to give than receive. And yeah. I do feel like that might've been a hot take a while ago, but I feel like people, especially younger generation now, like there just seems to be a, a strong philanthropic. And again, who's to say 15 years from now, they have mortgages and 401ks and little kids. But there, I, I think that more people than not are aware that 
Yeah, in in the long run, like obviously self care, soul care, that's really really important. But if you're only focusing on yourself, though, that eventually just leads to misery. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of people know that. Now, there's that doesn't mean that there's still aren't people that are going to have to learn it the hard way. But uh, I think this is one of the great opportunities the church has is to give people opportunities to give of themselves, both their time and their resources. And I think that's uh, that's really important. So a lot of us are wondering these days during a pandemic, where is meaning and purpose and happiness found? And so give this article a read and the one from Brooks earlier in the week. We'd love to know what you think. Do that at our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. Started a little differently today, but we do want to just remember uh, still in the midst of a global pandemic in which I'm looking at the numbers over 63,000 deaths in the U.S. We still need to be men and women praying and uh, and doing what we need to do, uh, what we're being asked to do to stay healthy and that. So uh, coming up next, uh, one of the interesting things that has happened during this time of stay at home is a lot of old TV shows have been reuniting uh, on Zoom. And I want to talk about one of those next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian. Fromm. I'm really glad to have you joining us on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Uh, hope that you are doing well. Uh, as a reminder, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online, uh, The Common Good Talk. Uh, find us, oh, that's on Twitter. Find us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, get your podcast wherever it is. Get our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Ian, I think that you even asked for reviews on Facebook today. I was very happy to see that. And uh, uh, for our podcast, hopefully uh, we keep hearing from you. And we'd love just if you've got ideas of things you'd like to hear us talk about, people will frequently message us on Facebook being like, hey, have you talked about this? Have you thought about that? So uh, go ahead to our Facebook page and do that. Uh, over this time where we've been, everyone's at home over Zoom or in other ways, uh, people have been, uh, TV shows have been kind of reuniting for one time. I believe Parks and Rec uh, did it the other day. Let me ask this before I get into this one, Ian. If any show from your past could reunite for a night, which one would you be most excited to like hop on and just watch them talk on Zoom or something? Watch the car- watch the uh, the actors and actresses talk again. Yeah, I mean, Fresh Prince would be up there for sure. Would it really? Oh yeah, you were a Fresh Prince guy. Oh yeah, absolutely. You were not. Oh, I totally was. Absolutely. Uh, could you? Could could we both wrap the entire open right now? Well, my guess is you probably don't know the extended open, the full open. Oh, do you? Okay. No, I do not know the extended open, but I could go with the uh, the entire regular open. Yeah, I could uh, do the regular open uh, in my sleep underwater. <laughs> this all of a sudden turned into a rap battle. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think most rap battles involve putting somebody underwater. <laughs> or think. or. A forty-plus-year-old pastor from the western suburbs. <laughs> that's that's more common than you might think, probably. Uh, but as you just hinted at, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, uh, their cast, including Will Smith, uh, they got together uh, on uh, on Will Smith's new Snapchat show, Will at Home, on his Instagram page. As the cast marked thirty years since the start of the hit show, and it was really fun. I watched some of it. So Carlton and Aunt Viv, Jeffrey, Hillary, Ashley, and even uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff were all on there. And what's really fun 
is uh, to see them reunite. Maybe they've been talking through this whole time, but to see them all together after 30 years uh, and watch them kind of reminisce and laugh like family. Have you had instances uh, like that so far with like old friends where you're like, we haven't talked in forever, but now all of a sudden we're on Zoom together and it's really fun to all be together. Anything like that? Oh, yeah. It's been fun because uh, one of the ones that I've done a couple of times are with former students of mine mm-hmm. in the student ministry that I led back in like 2006, 2007. And, you know, a lot of them are now married with their own kids or careers. Some of them are doctors. So that's no been way. pretty wild. A lot of them move. So they're all over the country. And we've just sort of made it a free for all. So there's sort of like a core that keeps showing up. But then we'll invite other guest people that uh, either it was like a guest teacher, they, you know, the kids really liked or one of the parents or I don't know. That's been that's been super fun. I've seen some other creative ideas that I'd like to implement or try out. I don't know that I'm savvy enough to pull that off, but I've loved I've loved that part of it. How about you? Yeah, some, uh, not a ton, but especially with family where, you know, none of us ever really just get on like a, a call like this and just laugh and talk. Uh, it did hit me the other day. I was like, I need to get my college roommates. We just haven't done anything like that yet. So uh, that would be a fun way to catch up. But uh, seeing these these television shows do it and just like they, they have a familial uh, tone to them. But what was really striking, what I want to talk to you about from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air one, they laughed and they talked about life and they talked about the show. Uh, but then it got kind of serious uh, as they talked about uh, Uncle Phil. Do you remember Uncle Phil? He was the mm-hmm. patriarch of the family. The actor who played Uncle Phil uh, was named James Avery. Uh, and Avery died from complications after open heart surgery in 2013 mm-hmm. uh, at the age of 68. And they got really emotional, all of them. They started showing clips of him with each one of them. Mm-hmm. And as each person watched them with with uh, with him, with Uncle Phil, with Avery, uh all of them just about to a man, to a woman, to a man, just start crying mm. and, and tearing up. And it struck me not to get too sentimental about it, but like that guy had a really big impact on their life that seven years later, they're crying. I don't know if you watched it and you were like, man, that, that like was a sign of some really depth of relationship and impact that after seven years. And so, and so I found that really heartwarming, but also it caused me to get a little introspective, like, uh, who have I had that impact on that after seven years, they would have that. I don't know. Did you see that portion of it? And if you did, what was your reaction to it? I haven't seen it yet, but I think what I tend to more gravitate towards rather than asking who have I left that impact with asking more, who has impacted me that way? And how do yeah. I, how do I show them that appreciation? I don't know. Like there's, and there's probably a bull fan to be honest, but you know, if you've ever seen the episode, where Will breaks down and Uncle Phil just like hugs him or the very final scene of the last episode. Again, I imagine it's probably not as emotional for everybody, but like I was just the right time, right place for that show to just hit me in all the feels as the kids say. So uh, it is endearing because there's always, I mean, a lot of these actors have gone on to do wildly different things and to see them all kind of collectively say, ah, that, yeah, that was a big, and I'm sure they, none of these were perfect relationships and I'm sure they weren't all, uh, the same amount of close with him, but there is something pretty profound about that environment, whether it be a TV or movie set where you're just living a lot of life together. And uh, I don't know. I think that I, I find that endearing in a time of a lot of chaos and uncertainty and sadness. That, that feels like a nice, a nice way to kind of honor and remember somebody. 
Yeah, it turned into just like you said, like a sentimental uh, session of them giving the impact that that Avery had had on them. So Will Smith said that just makes me teary the first couple of times seeing clips of James. Uh, and then uh, the, the woman who played Aunt Viv said, I love that man. Uh, and they just kept going. I don't know why. I, I think I was feeling in a little bit of a sentimental moment. I grew up watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air like you did. Uh, ironically, do you remember that they switched out Aunt Viv after the first season or two? Just oh, the- yeah. One of one of the most obvious switcheroos in the history oh, well, they of they didn't even hide it. <laughs> no. They didn't even look similar. There wasn't any, like, they had a different tone and vibe. It was like a different character, and, and then no one mentioned it at all. There's actually a bunch of memes floating around about that because – even especially when you see them side by side, you're like, wait, what? That's not even that's not even close. Yeah. Just to ask, like you said, what effect are we having on people? But who's having that kind of deep effect on me that I wish I that if they were no longer here, I will have wished I expressed it to them. Yeah. Um, I'm sure each of those people on that screen were probably thinking, man, I wish we could have him here and talk to him about that. So it was sentimental. I really enjoyed it. I encourage you to go check it out. Uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. All right, you got to answer the question. If you could have one, I asked you in the beginning, other than Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, one TV show reunite uh, where the characters just laugh and talk about the show, what would it be? Oh, man, it might be Cheers, to be honest. Oh, that'd be a good one. Che- I mean, think think of a better cast just to like watch them oh. have a beer and joke around. That would be a phenomenal, that'd be so fun. You might have won that one. I was going to go Seinfeld, which would also be good. Seinfeld would be good, for sure. I mean, but, The Office, Parks and Rec, some of the more newer ones, those would be a riot. That'd be, I mean, the Parks and Rec special was just yesterday. No. A lot of people have been talking about that. That was more of like an episode than a reunion, but. Cheers, that's a really good one. Maybe The Dukes of Hazard. We'll, we'll end there. <laughs> Dukes of Hazard. Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway. Love boat. We, oh, love boat. Now we're talking. <laughs> Coming up next. Uh, we're going to talk about an article that says, "Has is are we seeing the death of The Office? Not the TV show, but the actual physical office. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for you. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on this Friday afternoon. I know every day kind of feels the same, but hopefully you've got uh, good outside plans for the weekend this week. And uh, hopefully it's a good time with your family and uh, just some good time to be outside. We are going to talk about an article that suggests that maybe what we're seeing is the death of the office through this coronavirus pandemic. But before we do, uh, Ian, why don't you talk to us a little bit about Thrivent? Man, I could talk to you a lot of bit about Thrivent if as you want me to. Want. Okay, perfect. Here we go. Everyone get comfortable. Uh, so I've been a Thrivent member for like seven or eight years. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. I think at the very least, you'll love their mission, especially if you're listening and you're a Christ follower, you're interested in like that kind of ethos in how you handle your money. That's been awesome. Also, if you're looking for a career change, you can go to thrivent.com slash careers. And don't think that you necessarily need to have a background in finance either. If you just like come alongside people or you have kind of an entrepreneurial drive or this season has caused you to reevaluate some things, thrivent.com slash careers is the place to go. Also, there's a whole mess of great webinars that they've been hosting and will continue to host on how do we navigate mental health stuff or stress or homeschooling or parenting and marriages and all sorts of really practical, helpful things. And on May 7th, uh, Dr. Ed Stetzer is going to give a sort of lecture training on leadership in crisis. It's going to be phenomenal. It's totally free. 
at 11 a.m. Uh, on May 7th. And so all that information is on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And I cannot recommend enough that you check it out. Absolutely. Uh, that would be a good one with, with Ed Stetzer. Yes, sir. Um, so at 1843 Magazine, it's called. Don't know what the 1843 stands for. but uh, who, who found this one? Is this you? Oh, I did. I, I dug deep. I dug deep. Did a friend of yours share it on Facebook, Brian? Not that- at all. It was kind of came up on one of those home screens when you click up on, uh, you know, like to start something. It was right there. Mm-hmm. This the death of the office. The coronavirus pandemic has sped up a revolution in home working, leaving offices around the world empty. But what was the point of them anyway? So really long article. I would encourage you, if this interests you, to go read it. Uh, but here's kind of the premise, and I would love to know, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but um, it says this, even before the coronavirus struck, the reign of the office had started to look a little shaky. A combination of rising rents, the digital revolution, and increased demands for flexible working meant its population was slowly emigrating to different milieu. More than half the world, half the American workforce already worked remotely, at least some of the time. Across the world, homeworking had been rising steadily for a decade. Pundits predicted that it would increase further. No one imagined, though, that a dramatic spike would come so soon. It's too early to say whether the office is done for. As with any sudden loss, many of us find our judgment blurred by conflicting emotions. Relief at freedom from the daily commute and pleasure at turning one's back on what Philip Larkin called the toad work are tinged with (laughs) regret and nostalgia. Uh, and anyway, it goes on and on, but we shouldn't let sentimentality, sentimentality cloud us. The offices have always been profoundly flawed spaces. So that's the start. That's the beginning premise of this, uh, that the, the concept of the office is outdated and flawed and that some people are, are opining that it very well may go away, uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic. You and I have touched on this a couple different times, and we work in some different kind of office settings. Uh, but what is your reaction as you at least read the beginning of this about maybe the office going away altogether? Yeah, I think it's a super interesting discussion. I wonder how much of it will be a constant. Like we talk even about in church world, which you and I are most deeply seated. I think that there's a sense that whatever this looks like going forward is going to be a progression. Like it's going to be a slow ramp back into something. And I have no reason to believe that it still won't kind of continue to ramp and shift and morph even after we collectively think, okay, this we've now arrived at our new normal. I think it's actually going to be a lot more fluid than we realized, but I I did while you were talking, I found another article and it says, according to a new MIT report, 34% of Americans who previously commuted to work, reported that they were working from home by the first week of April due to the coronavirus. These new numbers represent a seismic shift in work culture. Prior to the pandemic, the number of people regularly working from home remained in the single digits with only about 4% of the U.S. workforce working from home at least half the time. However, the trend of working from home had been gaining momentum incrementally for years as technology and company cultures increasingly accommodated it. So we've kind of been trending this way anyway, but like you were saying, obviously, this pandemic has resulted in a massive spike to which I would be curious to know how many people a were really surprised at how well they were able to do their jobs at home. Because most of the people that I talk to are like anxious to get back to gathering in the office with other people. Like they want, like there's, they want to play by the rules and they want to be safe. But I, I feel like I'm hearing far fewer people say, 
nope, this is good for me. I'm I'm going. I prefer this actually, and I'm going to remain in this rhythm, this holding pattern, rather than even aim to head back to any kind of normal. And that is interesting, but not surprising to me. Yeah, this article is actually going to. It's funny. This article does a really good job of then making a turn, and it goes down that way. Let me read to you some more. For all the threat faced by the office, there is also cause for optimism about its future. These mm. days, the, quote, hyper-physical is so cherished, notes this person, Heatherwick. Uh, sales of records are at their highest in years. Book covers have rarely looked so beautiful. Though many of us might have been loath to admit it until the spring, all those desks and all those people, all that bustle and time-wasting have their benefits. Humans mm. need offices. Online encounters may be keeping us alive as social beings right now, but work-related video meetings are too often transactional, awkward, and unappealing. After the initial joy of peering into each other's houses on Zoom, we are confronted with people's heads looming even closer than we see them from across the desk at work, and we gaze Mm. in horror, half of its self-awareness that we, too, must look awful at thinning (laughs) hair and double chins. We become freakish specimens rather than people. No Skype chat can replicate uh, what Heatherwick calls the chemistry of the unexpected that you get in person. Offices may not fill the pages of poetry anthologies, uh, but they can be as moving as anywhere on earth because what moves us is not sitting at our computer. It's the relationship that we have with the people. So that's what I love about this article. It makes a big change. It actually ends up saying, ah, the office isn't going anywhere Hmm. because no matter how well we can do you know, working from home or telecommuting or whatever, uh, for the vast majority of people, uh, if given the opportunity, they're not going to want to give up that human interaction because that's a little bit at the core of who we are as people. Well, and I think, too, it's worth noting that, like, we've been accepting a new standard, too. Part of this other article I was reading was sharing how, you know, your dog or your kid's going to walk into the frame. And we as a company have just had to, like, loosen our restrictions and expectations a little bit. And the the speculation is that that's actually going to bring us closer. So in a normal environment, most churches would not be okay with their lead pastor filming a sermon from their living room on a cell phone. But because of this new normal right now, we are much more accepting of it. So part of me wonders, like once 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 it would be weird for pastors to be filming themselves in their bedroom on a cell phone. Uh, there will be an expectation, at least in our line of work, I think that there's uh, a, an, another emphasis again back on being together physically. Absolutely. So you can read that article. It's a long one, but I think it's really good. Uh, you can read it at our Facebook page. And uh, this difference between being being able to work from home and be, maybe being more efficient, but then also uh, the camaraderie that the office brings. Well, coming up next out of the Christian Post, it's just titled this, The Bible Verse That Changes Everything. We're going to talk about that verse and the concept of this article next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Hope you're doing well. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Online, uh, 1160hope.com, Twitter, uh, common good talk and uh find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast subscribe rate review we're also on instagram now but i don't know what our handle is do you know our instagram handle it's the same as twitter okay at common good talk there you go (laughs) i think i said it every day last week i know there's just so many of them that's because they can find us everywhere and uh Mm, mm -hmm, but i do mm -hmm. follow us on on instagram so um (laughs) i at least i have that going for us (laughs) 
That's true. Good, uh, good for you. <laughs> so you can find us in all sorts of different places. We're considering Snapchat, TikTok, everything else, but uh, those decisions will be made down the road. Uh, some good news here from the station. Uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, we do know that so many businesses have had to close their doors and reduce their hours. And we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. If you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. All one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we're going to take all of those and compile them and get that information out to share it with our listeners to hopefully help you as you keep your business going. So it's all totally free, no catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Way to go. Thank you. At the Christian Post, Jim Dennison wrote a column entitled this, The Bible Verse That Changes Everything. So I was like, oh, he found the verse. <laughs> oh, good for him. <laughs> he found the verse. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what verse he chose and maybe why he chose it? Yeah, let me get into it. He says today's special edition will be different. So that's a good heads up. Rather than focusing on something in the news which calls us to fight fear with faith, we will focus on a single verse in Scripture that calls us to do the same, which I do appreciate. You and I feel that same tension, right? Like every every day when we're planning this show, we're like, okay, how much of this show do we spend talking about the coronavirus? And is there a responsibility? Is there wisdom in talking about something else? He says, over the weekend, I came upon this statement. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. That's from Leviticus 26.1. As I read the verse, he said, I sensed the clear leading of the Holy Spirit to reflect on it. These reflections became this article as I became convinced that this ancient command speaks to every dimension of our lives and world, which I'll pause there because I know that plenty of people, when they hear passages about idols and idolatry, think the opposite. They think it is just historical. It is a completely outdated notion. Why as modern people, are we even still talking about idolatry? Do you find by the way that people tend to push back on that a little bit? I imagine you preach on idolatry every once in a while. I do. I do preach on idolatry. And like you said, generally when preaching on idolatry, the first point that we make is uh, this is still relevant because while we might not have, you know, golden calves or statues that we pray to, uh, we are no less uh, susceptible to idols. Our, our idols in our day are money or, um, you know, big houses, nice cars, pleasure, power. Um, so there might be things that are less easy to hold even, uh, but they're still the things uh, that take our worship. Really, that's all that idol worship is, that things that, that take the worship from God and put it on something else as our hope and as our God. And so you're right. Uh, a lot of times you read a verse out of Leviticus or you see the building of the golden calf or something. And you're like, well, that has nothing to do with now. Uh, we are just as susceptible to idol worship as they were back then. And I, I created a, an acronym years ago called idols, I think, to, to help remember, like, what are some ways that we have modern idols today? Let me see if I can remember. I was items. Right. So oh, okay. like stuff that we own to project a certain image of like who we are. Uh, D was was duties. If you find yourself like your identity wrapped up in like the achievements of what you do, um, that's an idol. Uh, others. So I think, think I would usually give some kind of caveat like God made us for a community. It's good to have people in our lives, but like all good things, good things can become a God thing. If like other people become like our source of meaning and identity longings, we all have longings, but 
when the source of identity is like giving into the constant pursuit of these longings. And the last one was the one that was always kind of got the most pushback. And I said, suffering. I said, sometimes we can even allow like our sufferings to become like the entirety of our identity. And that's, that is also not helpful. It's okay to not be okay, but it is also worth remembering over and over again that God has called us to something else. So, so this guy kind of asks the question that maybe a lot of us ask. He says in Leviticus 26, back in Israel's day, they would have been worshiping all sorts of different deities. So how is it relevant to us? This is one of the foundational principles of Christian theology is that the Bible is the word of God, not just that it was. The words are as relevant today as when they were first inspired it is living and active with present tense authority to speak divine truth into our lives and culture. And yet Jews and Christians are seldom confronted today with the temptation to set up a figured stone in the land. And that's how he kind of gets into um, how, how he actually finds this passage relevant. And I'm wondering, do you, is there anything in his argument that you found like particularly convincing or illuminating in a new way, like as someone who's taught on this before? Yeah, I think this whole, not in a new way, but I'm always needed to be reminded of, you know, he titles one later, the lore of idolatry. Yeah. Um, you know, this kind of, um, that he says our problem is pluralism, the claim that there are many gods and that each should be trusted, like that we have different gods that we hold up, um, you know, and in, in so I constantly, it's easy to go, well, I don't have a statue and I don't have whatever, you know. Um, but man, it's so easy for me to take, I like how you say good things and make them God things. That's a really good way of putting it, of Mm. taking things that are good. Idols usually aren't even bad things, uh, and putting them of like preeminence, right? So, uh, money's an easy one, but I think one of the great idols of our day is our kids. Like we'll do anything for our kids and we'll, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, but so many people in our culture are obsessed with their kids succeeding, their kids being happy, their kids. this, And again, not a bad thing. Right. Uh, but that begins to trump everything else. And so, um, you know, how would you say, though, we fight idol? Like, OK, we can identify our idols. A great book by Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods, if you want to read more about this. Um, but how would you suggest that we fight idol worship in our day? How do we not just diagnose our idols, but how do we then? Um, get it, get it right. Yeah, I think it has to start first with the acknowledgement that it's a real struggle that we all have, right? Like I think the great philosopher Bruce Springsteen said, "Everyone's <laughs> got a hungry heart, right? We all do. Like everyone, every, everyone's got something, and it might not be the same thing for you. It might not be money, sex, or power, but we all have a hungry heart. Like I think it was, didn't John Calvin say that the human mind is like a idle factory or something like that? Like there's something oh. in how we're wired. And I think that has to be a starting point because you can't fight something or even address something that you don't actually see as a problem. Right. And if, if we're totally content finding the bulk or the entirety of our identity in our kids and our marriages and our successes and our social media following, um, if that, if we're fine with that, then we'll never really get at the root of what idolatry actually is. Because I think idolatry really is about identity, right? Like, who are you? Yeah. Where's your significance? Where's your hope? What could you not live without? Like, I used to often say, if, you, if you've ever thought or prayed a prayer, God, I'll follow you when or I'll follow you if. Whatever's on the other side of that when or if, that's your actual idol. Hmm. Like, that's your actual God. God, I'll follow you if you give me a spouse, or when I make this much money or whatever, whatever you fill in that blank with, that's your God. That's your idol. And I think 
Uh, it has to get to the point where we actually recognize that as toxic and not ultimately for our good that I think we can begin to address it and actually, you know, improve. And I would say pastors out there, ourselves included, uh, the often the, sure. the, the idols of pastors is often their church. <laughs> so yeah, right. Uh, that, that is one to be careful about. Anyway, uh, this idea of idol worship is uh, as big a concept and a struggle as there is in scripture. And so it's one to be taken uh, very seriously. Well, coming up next, uh, Gospel Coalition, four ways to disagree graciously, especially as we move into an election season. Uh, how do we disagree with our brothers and sisters but do it in a gracious manner? That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss how do we disagree graciously, even in the midst of a political season. And then we're going to talk about Jesus as the great physician. That's all coming up next year on The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us here on this Friday afternoon. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find our show online at 1160hope.com. Get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we're thankful for those of you who are doing that. Uh, before we jump into this topic, I, I mentioned to you earlier in the week, we started watching The Chosen. I got to get Dallas Jenkins back on, man. We've watched a new episode of my family every day this week. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, man. We, I think he might be willing to come back on. Now that, I, now that I've watched it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really solid. I've really, and I knew that it was, but now watching it. Right. Uh, we've, we've watched it as a family, one of them every night, and it's been really fun, really good. The hype is real, man. Especially since we know Dallas and we've talked to him a lot about the show. And um, we're best friends and we're going yes. on vacation together. And so my kids, I'm like, I practically helped write this show. <laughs> <laughs> I got a writing credit. No big deal. Where is my credit on there? <laughs> <laughs> so at the uh, Christian at ChristianHeadlines.com, they, they recounted something that happened recently. Uh, Eric Metaxas and David French, who uh, we could generously say would fall on different ends of the political spectrum. Uh, it says, Eric Metax says, David French highlight evangelical disagreement over supporting President Trump. Let me read some of this. Okay. A recent virtual conference highlighted the divide that still exists among some evangelicals about supporting President Trump. Relevant magazine reports that at Q2020, uh, which featured talks from Tim Keller, Priscilla Shire, Ann Voskamp, Andy Crouch, Francis Chan, uh, and Lecrae, Eric Metaxas and David French took part in a dialogue about the evangelical backing of the president. Uh, Gabe Lyons, the founder of Q, hosted the conversation. And so it went on about how Metaxas used to be really anti-Trump, but now is one of his biggest backers uh, in the evangelical world, while French is very much a never-Trump guy. He says, I just, and a lot of it has to do with character. Um, And and they had a long conversation in which they discussed this. Uh, and, And so it got me thinking uh, how in this political season, and I wonder what the pandemic's going to do to this, but we've got this political season coming up, Trump and Biden, uh, and the evangelical vote being such a big one around Donald Trump and people being so locked in about kind of following him or not following him. Is there a way uh, to graciously disagree? And I guess I would start by saying, do you think this is something that we should seek to be gracious in our disagreement over, or is this one 
uh, is this a hill to go really hard at uh, and maybe be even to the point of not being gracious with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, I I think it's sort of a it's a logical fallacy. I think you can you can die on a hill and still be gracious. I don't I don't think they necessarily have to cancel Ooh, each other out. Good. Okay, how so? Like, what's uh, what do you mean by that? I don't I don't know that holding fast to your convictions necessitates the execution or posture that is not Christ-like or in any way would bring shame to you or the name of Jesus or any of that stuff. I think that people assume you can still be compassionate even if you don't share the convictions. I obviously think there are topics and conversations and realities that maybe require like an increase in volume, maybe maybe an extra exclamation mark at time, but that's not to say that Jesus at times wasn't cranking the knobs to 11 himself when he's he's not going around flipping over tables and cracking whips every day of his right. ministry, but he certainly is okay uh, sometimes doing that. So I, I think that there's we need probably a renewed, expanded picture of what graciousness looks like. But part of the problem is, to me, it's, it's sort of like calories. You know, we, we assume, like in the West – we have this massive distancing from, cal- oh, I need to cut out all calories. You need to cut out all calories. No, your body needs calories. The problem is we're almost always living in a surplus. So when people say things like, hey, sometimes, you know, we got to we gotta hold fast to our convictions. You're like, yeah, but we do that constantly ad nauseum, usually pretty rudely. So maybe we should look where our baseline is right now and adjust accordingly. So I think you, I think you can both die on the right hills or the hills that, seem right to you and do it with graciousness and kindness. Oh man. Really well put. I hadn't thought about that calories one. That's true. When people are saying I need to cut out calories, you're just cutting out the excess calories. Yeah. Right. You need calories with no calories, no fat, no sh- all of that. You need, your body needs that stuff. We're just so used to living with way more than we need yeah. that it feels like I need to cut it all out. So I think over the gospel coalition, not tied to this article at all, but they had an article today entitled four ways to disagree graciously, which I thought, well, that fits here very well. Because whether it's, um, you know, you see it on social media right now, this is getting very uh, emotional about uh, reopen, don't reopen. uh, How do we best deal with the coronavirus? And that's tied into politics. And then we're going to get into November here with the presidential campaign. And that's going to get really heated. And one thing that always I struggle with as a pastor is when I see people uh, brothers and sisters in Christ from my own church with one another, kind of going at it really in what I think is an ungracious manner uh, over these types of things. And so at the Gospel Coalition, they said four ways to disagree graciously. So they're going to give their ideas about how do we do this well. So why don't you and I bounce them back and forth, uh, the four things, uh, the four ways to disagree graciously. I will read the first one. Here we go. Okay. Number one is be honest. We must be transparent about our convictions, even if it causes disruption in our vocation, church life, or relationship. Painful as that is, it's not worth searing your conscience by misrepresenting yourself or your views. Some people seem to adjust their convictions with every new context. Uh, Whatever other nuances may be involved in how you think about representing your views in the context of ordination or employment, the fact remains that lying is a sin. Therefore, uh, when it, this is over doctrine, when a doctoral statement requires your affirmation without mental reservation, it means without mental reservation. So they're saying, be honest yeah. uh, about what you believe. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a good starting point. Number two, yeah. 
be tactful. Honestly, honesty is not the same as volunteering your views at the earliest possible moment, regardless of context. That's really good. There are times to be quiet. There are times to answer only the question you are asked. For instance, when you are sharing the gospel with someone or when you are seeking to build a Christian friendship, there may be topics you don't intentionally bring up in the initial stages of the conversation or relationship. This is not necessarily compromise. It often reflects wisdom. Hmm. Number three is be gracious. Kindness and civility are becoming scarce these days. More and more outrage is the norm. Therefore, we can testify to the gospel by speaking with kindness and moderation as we navigate our theological, or I would say political also, disagreements. Go out of your way to show love and respect to the other person, even when that person infuriates you. Doing theological triage is an opportunity to live out Jesus' words in John 13, 35, when he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then lastly, number four, be trusting. God is sovereign over even your doctrinal changes. He's looking out for you. The hairs in your head are all numbered. You can trust him to guide you and to take care of you. When my wife and I were in Chicago for a year of sabbatical and study, we made Psalm 121.3 our theme verse. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Every night before we went to sleep, we prayed for God's guidance for where he would deploy us after the year was over. He answered that prayer. Looking back at my life, I can see how God has been faithful to guide us throughout our doctrinal and denominational changes and to bring us to a place where we can happily serve. It's an an encouraging and calming thought to remember that God is attentively watching over the path we walk, including our theological migration. So again, he's talking more specifically in this article about theology and doctrine, but I think there's a lot of crossover to how we actually engage with political discourse. And again, I think it was Samuel Johnson who said, kindness is in our power even when fondness is not. It isn't even necessarily about liking the other person. You can still love the person with the love of Christ and not necessarily want to hang out with them or to spend time with them. That doesn't mean that we're off the hook to still show them the same kind of loving kindness that God first showed us. That's part of what it means to be a Christian in the world. And I think uh, as we close this up, think about the effect it can have culturally to our world as they, if they see uh, Christians, brothers and sisters, disagreeing graciously, not agreeing about everything, but having a right. unity even in their disagreement and disagreeing graciously uh, and setting that up. We live in a culture where people do not disagree graciously. Uh, so if we look different that way, uh, it could really uh, make a big impact in Jesus's words, right? They will know we are Christians. They will know, they will know we are disciples uh, by the way we love one another. Uh, well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Nor- uh, Norlin Dimmitt, uh, Compassion Citizens Foundation. Uh, we're excited to talk to Norlin next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, over these last couple of weeks, especially as we've all been kind of processing uh, how life has changed through the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Ian and I have really enjoyed having other voices come on and other people come on uh, to talk and and share with uh, share with us how they're processing and how they are doing. And so, with that in mind, we are excited to be joined today by Norlin Dimmitt. Norlin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much. Uh, glad to be here. I am. Uh... Norland Dimmitt, as you said, and I am the uh, co-founder of a tiny little unfunded nonprofit called Compassionate Citizens Foundation, which has uh, a comparatively complex message, but the easiest way to put it is we are looking to 
unite Christians to build compassionate communities. And we've taken much of our inspiration from the Community 412 that you're very familiar with, with Community mm-hmm. Christian Church, Kirsten Strand's vision for compassionate community. So the other phrase, too, that I'm seeing here in a lot of your writings and your bio is missional ecumenism, which is a kind of kissing cousin to some of what you're describing here a little bit. How does Compassionate Citizens Foundation work to build and maybe further missional ecumenism in the city? Well, this has been an interesting uh, uh, challenge to figure out how to link the ecumenical movement to what ultimately is a wiser democracy movement uh, and an economic empowerment movement. Uh, specifically, the Christian community development movement is where we're centered. But um, I got to know John Armstrong uh, back in May of last year, basically going on a year now. And we just had a deep, deep chemistry. The first time we ever met, there was just a real sense that we were going to be doing something together. And of course, he's retired now and uh, very happily retired, I, I would add, because he's he's been uh, <laughs> battling a lot of health issues that he's made public. So I'm not overstating the case here with with revealing this, but uh, but he's been a mentor, a spiritual mentor, and his his issue was the fact that the divided church, Protestants, Orthodox, Catholic folks, uh, ever since you know 1054, the Orthodox split with the Catholics, and in 1517, if we want to put a date on it, Martin Luther did his thing, the 95 Theses, and we splintered into 30,000 directions, and the idea is the only way we're going to get back to being a unified church in purpose and witness is to build deep relationships across all of the theological and practical differences between um, all of the different denominations and sub-denominations. And so uh, taking that idea, that's a very spiritually uh, oriented uh, healing of division and extrapolating that out to the cultural, the political and the economic has been more or less what I've been working on for the last year is to say, how do we unite these various movements that have to do with building the kingdom on earth, or at least paving the way towards the kingdom on earth. So we think we've got a story now out on, I don't know if you've read the very latest, uh, I keep revising it every day these days because we're getting a real sense of what we're doing, and that also leads to regular revisions as you try to improve (laughs) the language. But we just rewrote the script out on Compassionate Citizens so that it really starts with the end goal and then works back because it's pretty complicated to fix what's broken on this planet. How do you uh, paint that picture for people of unity, right? We live in a culture that's a lot marked a lot more by disunity and kind of staying closely with your tribe and, and staying away from those that might be different than you. So how do you paint that picture for people of the need for unity and reaching across, maybe uh, building bridges and reaching across the sure. Well, the way I try to paint it is to not diss tribes. I mean, we do live in tribes. That's the way to to basically do a delicate dance between tribalism and globalism, if you will, that allows people to fully express who they are. Because if we're to define a tribe, for example, theologically, uh, a Christian, non-Christian is one way to break that out. And then we can splinter ourselves out 30,000 more times as Christians, you know, because of all the independent Baptist churches and and so forth that don't even affiliate with a denomination. But if we actually, instead of trying to resolve differences, if we just understand and accept the reality of our difference, at least at a moment in time, accept it, we're going to always try to change one another's minds. But let's not try to change one another's minds at all or our hearts or anything else. 
before we've established real relationship. And let's establish that relationship around the common ground that we already have. And you guys very much focus on the common good. And I would say common ground uh, is the common good. Most of us uh, acknowledge that everybody deserves uh, an opportunity to live a decent life. That's not in, in principle. It's always a how we get there that we vehemently disagree. So if we start the equation with a question that says, how can we link arms despite differences, theological political differences, how can we link arms and uplift the poor, the sick, uh, basically tackle poverty and the vulnerable populations out there? Because virtually every Christian, in fact, I would challenge your label of Christian if you said you do not care to exert energy to uplift the poor. I would I would suggest mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't read the same Gospels that I read. So what I'm curious is, do you find that in these last few weeks— people are more receptive to the idea of building and furthering compassionate communities. Like what you've kind of given yourself to, are you seeing a greater receptivity? And maybe a follow-up question is what would you say to the person that's maybe hearing some of what you're saying for the first time and they want to get involved or they want to learn more at the very least. Sure. So I would definitely just reference my website, not because we're anything special at all, but because we have over 350 links to websites of uh, across whatever you're interested in, politics, economic development, uh, cultural change, cultivating compassion, spirituality that relates to this idea of building uh, what we call sustainable equity for all so that we don't neglect future generations. Uh, and that website is compassionatecitizens.us. Uh, CompassionateCitizens.us. We're only operating in the United States. We're only operating in America for now, but our goal is certainly a world that works for all. Our vision, I should say, not our mission. Our mission is only the United States. Uh, We're trying to unite Christians in America to create an America that works for all. And there's just a million ways, literal million ways. There's a million silos of compassion out there. There's over 300,000 churches all doing various things in the realm of of helping neighbors, but we want to take that energy and that attention and that passion and direct it to systemic change as well as band-aids on the immediate needs, which is exactly what Kirsten Strand did with Community 12, 412 as far as uh, the vision for Community 412. What would be some markers or what would be a descriptor of a compassionate community? Could you paint that picture for us a little bit? Sure. Sure. So if we simply acknowledge and affirm and commit to the idea of universal human dignity, that, that we're all made in the eyes of God, we're all made in God's image. And no matter how far we may deviate from submitting to God's will, that we basically uh, all deserve. We Well, that's an argument, right? Theologically, whether we deserve it or not. God loves us whether we deserve it or not. That, but we are called to love one another whether we deserve it or not. Uh, and we're actually called to forgive one another. We're called to love our enemy. And so uh, a community where, whether you're Christian or not, if you embrace the idea that your neighbor deserves a, a decent life and deserves to be treated respectfully and fairly and equitably, then you have all of the ingredients to build compassionate community. That does not mean that we're not going to disagree and disagree vehemently on a myriad number of issues that we might come to conclusions that we will support a decision because it was democratically arrived at, but we disagree with that decision at the end of the day. What we don't have now is a mechanism for coming to that kind of democratic consensus because we divided ourselves up into two 
fringe parties, frankly, for the far left and the far right politically with no right. place for most of us. 76% of Americans don't really have a party that they completely identify with, which is how broken mm-hmm. we are as a political system. So in like the 30 seconds we have left, someone's listening and they're encouraged, they're inspired, they're challenged. They maybe never heard of any of this before. Other than going to your website, what's one step that you would encourage them to take this week or this month towards what you're okay, talking Okay, in, in Chicago, I would encourage everybody to just look up two websites. You said one, I'm going to give you two. Parish Collective, <laughs> and, that, and I list both of them in my other website. That's why I thought that was the one-stop shop there. But click into those two websites. CCDA.org is the Christian Community Development Association. That's the larger by far. But Parish Collective.org, headquartered in Seattle, it has just a wonderful vision of relationship building and of getting out into the community. People in a given church tend to get walled off in that church, getting out into their community, their neighborhood, caring for their neighbors and their neighborhood, basically. But parishcollective.org and ccda.org, look at them, join one of them or both of them. Well, Norlin, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Norlin Dimmitt. Uh, from Compassion Citizens Foundation. Norlin, uh, thank you for joining us. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, Subscribe, rate, and review. We're grateful for those of you uh, who do that. Over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, they posted an article about Jesus being the great physician, uh, titled The Great Physician for COVID-19. We're going to talk about that here in a second, but first, Ian is going to tell us about a great organization we partnered with called Thrivent. Yeah, a couple of things. I personally love Thrivent. I think if you peruse the website, it'll become really clear why. I would encourage you to check out what they do with action teams, by the way. Twice a year, Thrivent members can apply for a $250 like seed money thing to like make an impact in their community, which is awesome. And I don't I don't know any other organization doing anything like that. You can also, though, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers. And a lot of us are maybe you're rethinking something right now in the midst of this pandemic. You don't even need to have a background in finance necessarily. So Thrivent.com slash careers is where to go. Plus, uh, one of the many ways they're giving back is by providing these webinars and these lectures and resources really to help people kind of navigate a pretty unprecedented time. There's a whole bunch more coming up in the next couple of weeks. Those are all posted on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show, but a very special one, uh, Thursday, May 7th at 11 a.m. Central Standard. Uh, They're welcoming Dr. Ed Stetzer to teach on the topic of leadership in times of crisis. And so essentially he's going to walk leaders through how to lead well in the middle of a crisis. So if you lead people at any level in any capacity, you don't even have to be in Chicagoland. Go to our Facebook page. Look for the image of Ed Stetzer there. And I can't encourage you enough to check that out. Absolutely. Well, over at the uh, Gospel Coalition, as we said, Joshua Ryan Butler wrote an article today called The Great Physician for COVID-19. Uh, And it starts this way. Which Bible character best represents us as a society in this COVID-19 moment? My vote is for the bleeding woman of Luke 8. Let me explain why. When she first comes to Jesus, we're told that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. 
A few observations. First, she's lonely. She's been social distancing for 12 years. He says, I was going crazy after 12 uh, days. He goes on to say, second, the bleeding woman is also broke. She spent all her living on doctors. The bank account is empty. The money's dried up. Her hope likely gone. We can relate to her on this point, too. Uh, he goes. He says, I've talked to multiple friends who've lost jobs in recent weeks or whose businesses are fighting to stay afloat. The whole economy is tanking and we've passed a $2 trillion stimulus package in an attempt, like the bleeding woman, to address our condition by throwing everything we have at it. Finally, and most importantly, she's sick. This woman is bleeding out. Her body isn't working right. In the Bible, uh, blood is seen as the life of a person. So there's a picture here of life gradually draining out, slowly slipping away. We can relate to this, too. Even if we don't know anyone with the virus, COVID-19 has confronted us with our mortality, bringing us face to face with the inconvenient truth that we're not invincible. We're all bleeding out in this broader metaphorical sense, our lives gradually slipping away. This woman is us, sick, broke, and lonely. So where do we go? What do we do? Is there any hope for our condition? And he's going to say, let's follow her to find out. What do you think of using the bleeding woman uh, in this passage uh, as kind of a, a metaphor for what we're going through today? Uh, I'd give it a B plus. Oh, okay. Any, any reason for that? Nah, that's just my gut. Okay. How, do you, how, how do you feel about it as a, as a metaphor in this way? You're that teacher who just goes, eh, uh, B plus. Okay. Uh, I'm with what, you. My teacher does that. <laughs> yeah, it's got some holes, but um, but he makes some good points here, and he's going to continue. You know, it's hard to take actual stories and be like, we're that person and, and turn story into metaphor. But, right. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty interesting. He goes on to say, Uh, Jesus is contagious. The woman reaches out to Jesus and surprisingly, he's the one who's contagious. She came up and immediately her discharge of blood uh, ceased. Uh, She doesn't get him dirty. He makes her clean. She doesn't transfer her impurity to him. He transfers his purity to her. She doesn't give him her sickness. He gives her his wholeness. The gospel has often been called a great exchange uh, in this way. He goes on to say later, uh, healing is on its way. The resurrection of Jesus shifts our question from if I get healed to when I get healed. The risen Christ is the first fruits of God's plan to raise the dead and restore all creation. Uh, So even if we don't experience healing today, we can know we will soon. So this picture of Jesus as healer, whether it be now or sometime down the road, do you, is that helpful? Do you think for us, as we face a global pandemic, Jesus, the great physician, one who he will either now or down the road, ultimately bring healing? Uh, I think so to a degree. I could also see people who bang that drum also being in the camp of making science that say, Jesus is my vaccine. I, I could see this mantra leading to you know other places that we've seen in the news that maybe we wouldn't necessarily agree with. So. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's helpful to uh, a degree. I don't I don't know that I would necessarily like if it were up to me. I don't know that I would write this article personally. Gotcha, gotcha. We're not going to hear this at community. This being preached here for you. Yeah, uh, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> uh, where am I? The power of being known. Oh wait, first of all, he talks about resurrection. He says resurrection is coming. Like the bleeding woman, we sometimes get a foretaste and glimpse of this final victory. Uh, I experienced last week when my grandma Rena was apparently healed and released from the hospital after friends rallied with me to pray for her. 
But I also experienced the not yet of the kingdom last week when my friend Mitch passed away all too young from heart failure, failure, though he deeply loved Jesus and was a man of great faith. The Christian gospel is good news for both Mitch and Rena. For Mitch, it proclaims death doesn't have the last word. We will be raised. For Rena, it proclaims Christ is close. We can experience his care today. Our resurrected king is alive with both strength and today for today and hope for tomorrow. As the sick, broke, and lonely, we can reach out to Jesus, entrusting ourselves to his faithful care. So this concept, going along with the last one, this concept of resurrection that uh, uh, that there is hope now, there is also hope coming, that even if we were to pass, uh, that, that there is resurrection in Christ. I think this uh, eternal picture, right, this uh, bigger picture, I think is is very helpful for what we're going through. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's helpful. I think it's also, he mentioned too, it's not just that he's interested in healing her, but that she's known when yep. he says, you know, who touched me? Uh, at first, she's scared when the woman saw that she was not hidden. She came trembling. That's verse 47. She's afraid because everyone around her is about to realize that they need to go home and take a bath. The only thing worse, though, than living in the shadows is being exposed to the judgment and stares of others. Yet, how does Jesus respond? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her daughter. This is an expression of fatherly care. Jesus doesn't just call her inconvenience or nuisance. He calls her child. When we approach God in faith, he greets us not with a lecture, but with an embrace. I think I think that was a, a really keen insight on this passage. Absolutely. So he closes this way. Christ is our great physician, and that is a powerful identity. Uh, doctors and nurses have been the most inspiring heroes of this season. Healthcare workers brave the front lines to care for the sick and wounded, knowing all too well the contagiousness of the virus they're up against. They place themselves at risk of contracting in this microbiological warfare, the very condition they seek to cure. Around the world, we see similar scenes. Uh, why are our hearts captivated by such actions? This author says, I would suggest these images reflect the true story at the center of the world. For Christ is the great physician who drew close to care for us, the sick and the wounded. He knew how contagious our condition was, yet he came. He came knowing that absorbing our affliction was the cure. Christ is the great physician uh, who took on our sickness to heal and to make us whole. Like the bleeding woman, we're invited to reach out to the one who's drawn close, already uh, reaching out for us. That is Joshua Ryan Butler. He is pastor at Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona, uh, and author of The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God. You can find this article at the Gospel Coalition. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about uh, the story he uses uh, and if you find it helpful. The Great Physician for COVID-19. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show. We're going to end the week the way we end every show. Uh, Interweb insanity, crazy stories from the internet. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. And that music only means one thing. It means it's the end of the show. It's the end of the week. Uh, and it's interweb insanities, a time where we read articles given to us by our executive producer, Keith Conrad. Uh, sometimes they're funny. Sometimes what was the one yesterday that had a squirming? But uh, either way, I'd rather uh, not recall it. We are doing we are we are doing the laughing or the squirming right alongside you. So why don't you give us the first one out of Canada? Why don't I give us the first one? Why out ask, of Canada? Yeah. Wife tops husband's $10 lottery win 
with $360,000 jackpot. <laughs> British Columbia woman said her husband's boast about winning $10 from a lottery drawing led her to check her own tickets and discover a $360,000 jackpot. Jolene Keith of Delta told BCLC officials she was working from home Tuesday morning when her husband texted to share some good news. I was working early on Tuesday morning, Keith said. My husband texted me saying he had won $10 on his tickets, so I checked mine. When I found out I won daily grand, I took a screenshot of the win and sent it to him and said, I think I have you beat. (laughs) Keith won the second prize in the daily grand's April 20th drawing. She chose to take her winnings as a $360,000 lump sum rather than $18,000 a year for life. Girlfriend's going to get paid. If I'm the husband, I'm glad that she beat me on that one. <laughs> now, do you take the 360 lump sum or 18 grand a year for life? Uh, it's been proven, I believe, that to take the lump sum is better. So, you know, you can invest it and do whatever. I think I'd go lump sum on that one. Has that been proven? I thought so. I'll have to look that up. But I thought that, that, that that's been the... Uh, the general line of thought, but what would you do? How many how many more years on planet Earth do you think that you have? That I have? <laughs> I think I've got a good... I got 40. Okay, I, I typed in 50. 18 grand times 50 would be $900,000. Oh, interesting. Wow. Well, maybe I, maybe I will do that, and, and I was wrong <laughs> about the proof. These, ve- these very realistic scenarios were playing out. I know, I know. Okay, Pennsylvania. Deer take over formerly busy streets of Pennsylvania City. Hmm. A resident of Pennsylvania captured video of a herd of deer leisurely strolling through a formerly busy road amid the coronavirus lockdown. The video, filmed Thursday, shows about 10 deer walking through the middle of an empty North Avenue and Grant Avenue in Millville. Millvale. The resident said the streets are normally busy during the day but have been emptied by the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh! A deer! A female deer. Sort of a fun story, huh? Yeah, yeah. All right, out of Japan, Japanese aquarium asking public to video chat with skittish eels. Huh. Huh. Aquarium in Japan is asking members of the public to video chat with its eels to keep the animals accustomed to humans during the coronavirus lockdown. No kidding. The Sumidi Aquarium in Tokyo, which is home to about 300 spotted garden eels, said the ocean creatures had grown accustomed to the presence of humans peering into their tanks. But since the aquariums closed March 1st due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the eels have started to become more skittish. It seems like the spotted garden eels are getting used to a non-human environment and have forgotten about people. When the staff pass in front of them, they start hiding in the sand. No kidding. The the facility announced it is holding a face-showing festival May 3rd to 5th for members of the public to use FaceTime on Apple devices to video conference with the eels on screens set up around the tanks. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. I was, I've been around you so long, I was just waiting for a, I played bass in skittish eels. But... No, that joke is so yesterday. Oh, no, I love that joke. That joke's got to keep going. Uh, next one's out of California. Exotic bird annoying California neighborhood with loud calls. Residents of a California neighborhood said an exotic bird has moved into the area and is creating a lot of unwanted noise while evading capture. North and East neighborhood said the African helmeted guinea fowl has taken up residence in the area and has been causing disturbances with its loud calls. The species is native to Africa, but they are often raised on farms in the U.S. and elsewhere. Locals said the bird, which is believed to be the same bird that was spotted in the East Richmond Heights area a few weeks earlier, is fast moving and flies up to rooftops when pursued. Uh, County Animal Protective Service officers told residents there's nothing they can do about the non-native bird unless it's injured. Hey, 
Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Guys! 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 Okay, last but not least, we're going to land right here in Chicago. Giant mask stolen off lion sculpture in Chicago. No, no. Police in Chicago said two men stole a giant face mask that was placed on one of the iconic lion statues in front of the Art Institute of Chicago. The Institute's two lions were both fitted with giant face uh, giant face masks being the Chicago flag. Thursday morning, ahead of a statewide order that went into effect Friday, requiring all people over the age of two to wear face masks while in stores and other locations where they can't maintain social distances. Police said a security guard at the Institute witnessed two men get out of a black Chevrolet sedan around 11 p.m. Thursday and cut the mask off of one of the statues before fleeing with the item. Investigators said no arrests have been made. The museum said it plans to replace the mask as soon as possible. People who do that should be arrested. That's just vandalism. Why are you stealing a big lion mask? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on, Chicago. We're better than that. We can do better. Well, we've enjoyed being with you all week. Hopefully you have a great weekend. Join us again on Monday from 4 until 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.